I'm honored to be here and to share with you today. I need to kind of set this message up so it makes some sense. There is a purpose to it. What in the world are you doing reading out of the book of Ezekiel? And what does that have to do with uh, Providence Baptist Church? Well, I'm deeply honored, as I said, to be your interim pastor. But quite honestly, I need your help. And I need your help because this is, for two reasons, a difficult time in the life of church. One is that you're without a pastor and you're going to be needing to do a lot of things. Uh, sometimes without a pastor, the people of the church have to take on some new roles and new jobs to get things done that sometimes were done differently and you need to do that. And, and without a pastor, you sort of don't know uh, exactly what to do. You're looking forward to getting a new pastor, but it's a time of transition. And times of transition can be kind of difficult and sometimes a little hard, sometimes easy, but the church uh, needs to bind together and to work to do this, get this done, to get towards the calling the person, the, God, the man that God wants to be your pastor. And it's not going to be an easy task, so... I need your help. As your interim, I need your help to get us there. Not that I do that, but to keep consistency going and, and continuity going. And, and uh, we all worship together and draw from that spiritual energy that we can get so that God can use us uh, as individuals, as members of this church, to be able to find that new pastor and move on to be the church that God wants you to be. So I need your help to do that. And so this message sort of lays some of that groundwork to share why. But the second thing that's, that's really true is that we face a spiritual battle out in the world. And uh, the world isn't always the place where the name of Jesus is lifted up. In fact, in some places it's cursed and rejected. And we need to be that kind of lighthouse, that kind of beacon that shows people what it means to know Jesus Christ. As Tony shared with us this morning, that's our goal, to help win the world to know Jesus Christ. The problem is we have an enemy out there. Uh, I call him Satan. And I believe in a personal Satan. And I think he's going to do everything he can to keep us from doing that. As a matter of fact, he loves churches that are without a pastor in transition because sometimes he can create a big stirs about not much at all and get the church busy on peripheral things and not on things that matter for all time and eternity, which is fighting the evil in him out there and standing as a lighthouse or as a beacon. And sometimes churches do that when they're looking for a pastor. So that's the second reason. We also have to say that we need your help. I need your help. You need to be here for your church uh, during this time. In fact, I'd almost say there is no time ever in being a, a servant of Jesus Christ where we can sit back and say, well, I've done it all. Now I can rest. Because God is always wanting to be glorified out there in the world, and he wants more than anything else to use you and me to be his servants to help win the world for Jesus Christ. So having said that, I need you to help me because I'm going to share with you um, really uh, six, five specific things that you can do during the interim 
to help the church. Now, I'm not going to do that today. It's actually a series of six sermons, including this one, and then five more sermons that we're going to do throughout the uh, month of March, and then take a couple of breaks there for the Lord's Supper, and then Easter, and then we'll come back, and by the end of April, we'll finish up the, the six sermons. So if you really want to know, know what you need to do and how to help me, you got to come, right? So that's the biggest thing you can do to help me is to come. In fact, we're going to talk about attending, but you need to call everybody up, your friends, and they might be saying, oh, well, we don't have a pastor. don't know who's going to be preaching. Well, you can say, you know, there's this crazy guy that calls himself a Baltimorean, and he's going to be here all these weeks. You just got to come and hear him, okay? Or come and find out what he's going to do. And I need you to help me do that because we need to be the church together and have a priority of learning what we need to do uh, in the coming weeks and months as, as the church puts together um, the pastor search committee, as you get things taken care of and get prepared to begin that search Search for the, the man that God wants to put here, honestly, to lead you guys uh, into the next decade, or as long as God tarries in sending the Son, we want to be the kind of church that honors God, that exalts Jesus Christ, that becomes that kind of beacon or lighthouse. I, can't, I really can't overemphasize that. Be that light in the world here in Kansas City, in, in this area of town. We really, really need to do that. So... We need to learn those uh, five specific things. I call them standing in the gaps, uh, G-A-P-S-S. So we're going to have those five sermons after this one. Um, I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. Giving, attending, praying, uh, share, uh, serving, and sharing. We're going to talk about those uh, and how that, that impacts the church while it's looking for an interim pastor and your ministry. Now, obviously, you're doing a lot of those things already, and I'm not here to chastise you because you aren't. I'm here to celebrate and encourage you to continue doing those things that honors God and that helps win the lost and present Christ and lift him up to a world that desperately needs him, a broken world that desperately needs to come to know the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. So my goal is to do that, but you're going to have to help me. So the main thing you do is tell people to come and, and come and plan to be here so you hear these things and you can actually help your church uh, do those things. Now, I also need to set up this text from Ezekiel because this sermon today kind of shares why. It, it's, it's got the purpose behind it and the circumstances behind it that suggests why we need to have this sermon series and why we need to do these things. And it has to do with our relationship to God through Jesus Christ in what is called the new covenant. And we have to understand what's happening in the book of Ezekiel and the text here that says that God was looking for someone to stand in the gaps. But in Israel, in Jerusalem, in Judah of its day, he couldn't find one. And I pray that that won't be the case for us, that God won't be able to find somebody to stand in the gaps because the situation is actually critical in Judah, and I think it's critical today. All you have to do is read the newspaper. All you have to do is listen to the news. And there's all kinds of crazy things going on out there. 
And it's not being a witness for Jesus Christ. And those who stand up for him are often laughed at and ridiculed and beaten down and told to be quiet and, and just get out of the way. And we have to be faithful. So there's a reason for this and there's a purpose for this. But Ezekiel, in that context, shows us why God needs us to stand in the gap. So I'm going to try and do that. In Ezekiel 22, we have um, a series of oracles or in Ezekiel, and there's about three connected oracles or messages from God that God gives to Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet, and he's actually living, he was living in Jerusalem around 580 or so, 590 BC, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came over and attacked Judah and took a lot of its best and brightest people into captivity. One of those was Daniel, and then he came back and he took another group and in that group was Ezekiel the prophet. Ezekiel was supposed to become a priest in the temple, but he celebrated his 30th birthday in Babylon, unable to be a priest, but God called him to be a prophet. So God began to speak to him about the circumstances of Judah and Jerusalem and what he was supposed to do, Ezekiel, in telling the people what God was doing and how they needed to be faithful to God. Because being carried away into exile was the result of Judah's sin. So we're going to find out that in this, this uh, prophetic message, Jerusalem and Judah was in trouble. If we look at chapter 22 of Ezekiel, and by the way, if you don't have your Bible with you, there's pew Bibles out there, and it's on page 847 in your, in your pew, pew Bible, and you may want to follow along. I'm not trying to make this complicated, but it is a little complicated, okay? People say, what's that about that Old Testament, you know? But it's what I teach, and it's exciting to find out what's happening here. Now, all you have to realize is that God was totally displeased with Judah, and we'll explain why in a few minutes. But God was telling Judah that they weren't any better um, than a city of blood, this is a pretty bad charge. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, Ezekiel said, The word of the Lord came to me, As for you, son of man, will you pass judgment? Will you pass judgment against the city of blood? Then explain all her detestable practices to her. This is Jerusalem. You are to say, This is what the Lord God says, A city that sheds blood within her walls, so that her time of judgment is come, and who makes idols for herself so that she is defiled. You, he's talking about Judah, Jerusalem, are guilty of the blood you've shed, and you have defiled from the and you are defiled from the idols you've made. You have brought your judgment days near and have come to your years of punishment. Therefore I have made you a disgrace to the nations and a mockery to all the lands. Those who are near you and those far away from you will mock you you infamous one full of turmoil. See, Judah was supposed to be the people of God. Jerusalem was where the temple was. And yet, even though they were supposed to be the people of God and Jerusalem was where the temple was, they were not following the Lord God. In fact, they had been full of idols and they had shed blood and God said, it ain't gonna cut it, guys. That's not what I wanted you to be. That's not why I put my temple there. 
I wanted that to be basically a place where all peoples would come and would pray and would seek my face and I would heal their land and I would prosper them and I would make them the people of God. But you've turned your backs on that and you have just served yourself, your own wishes, your own particular prejudices, and you are now a city full of blood that falls down and worships worthless idols. The leaders and the people of Jerusalem had basically opened a savings account of brutality against the innocent and the oppressed. Judah's princes and prophets were any better. They were morally corrupt. And through chapter 22, God says to Ezekiel, tell them they're doing the wrong things. These things that they keep doing will result in their judgment. And it won't be pretty. It would appear that God did not want to destroy Jerusalem and Judah. But the people kept sinning against God. The people continued to do the things that dishonored God and the covenant he had made with them at Sinai. And the question would be, how long, God, would you let that go before you would judge them? Quite rightly so, judge them for their sins. And the answer is found in our text that we're going to look at today. First of all, I want you to note that Judah created the sinful conditions. Nobody else did this to them. They did it themselves. No other nation, no other group of people imposed this upon them. They did it themselves. And what they did, we're going to see, is to misunderstand and break the very agreement of the Sinai covenant. So this is what we have here. In verse 29, the people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. Actually, the Hebrew text, they have extorted extortions and robbed robbery. The emphasis is, is doubly there. You really have done extortion and robbery. Now, that's not what believers, the people of God, are supposed to do. They have oppressed the poor and the needy, and they have unlawfully, it says here, unlawfully exploited the gare, the word gare there means an alien, somebody who doesn't have any rights. The needy and the poor, the orphans and the widows, they have oppressed them. They have taken from them to fill, to fill their own coffers, to make their own savings and loan account get bigger while the other people were struggling and suffering, hungry and poor. You see, that's the opposite of what God wants. God doesn't want them to do this to other people. Prosperity doesn't come in the, in the people of God at the expense of others. It comes as God blesses when the covenant is kept. Now you have to understand something about this covenant. In Isaiah 5, 7 and Amos 5, 24, the prophets, Isaiah and the prophet Amos say, look, what God wants is righteousness and justice. God wants his people to be righteous and his people to be just. And really that's the two dimensions of the covenant. When you take a look at those terms, the word righteousness means is that you have a right relationship with God. That's how you live with him. 
here and here. You know, I praise you, God. I talk to you. I listen to you. I study who you are. I come to you. And that's a very important part of faith, to have a right relationship with God. But in the covenant, God said, if you want to be my people and, and you want me to be your God, not only do you have to pay attention to righteousness, but you have to pay attention to justice. Justice is that horizontal relationship between the people of God and the poor and the needy and the widows and the orphan. It's designated or explained by the term justice. So there is a moral part of the covenant. The moral part of the covenant is fed by the righteousness that we know of God. God teaches us to be righteous in return. We show that righteousness in living in a just and loving and caring way. It's really basically what you got here, loving God and loving people. And here's the point. You can't love God if you don't love the people. And if you don't love the people, you can't love God. You see, it's a connected relationship. And by the way, that relationship works like this. The more we love God and the more we treat people with Christ-like love and care, they get to point back to God and say, that's the hypotenuse of the right triangle, you see. We're doing, we're doing, we're doing biblical math here. The right, the hypotenuse, they, the nations, glorify God. Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations that way. In the temple, in the holy city, the nations were supposed to see a group of people loving God and loving others. And loving them in such a way that they came to know the grace and the wonderful care of God. Do you follow me? That's what the covenant was supposed to be. Israel, Judah, had gotten rid of that. They faked their relationship with God. Oh, we'll come and we'll give these sacrifices in the temple. Do you remember us talking uh, two Sundays ago about Jesus cleansing the temple? Because it had become a fake, a fraud. And what God was, was wanting is for the people of God to come humbly before him and offer their, their sacrifices, their gifts, and then turn around and love people and show justice to people, recognizing that those people mattered in God's eyes as well. As a believer, as a Christian, you got to think of this way. Jesus died on the cross for us, but you know what? He died on the cross for others. And an early Christian bishop once said, call no one worthless for whom Christ died. I believe God, Jesus died on the cross for all. Whether we come to him or not makes the difference. But here's the point. If Judah was having a right relationship with God, and, and she wasn't, and she was having, therefore, in, in light of that, a right relationship with others, then the tables would be turned and they would be that kind of a nation where everyone would come. But instead, God told Ezekiel to tell them that they had messed it up. They had turned it upside down. They had extorted extortion and robbed robbery. They had oppressed the poor and exploited all of the people who had no rights. They had committed the moral failure of living in a way that honored a holy God. And this is why they created the sinful conditions. 
In our faith, in our church, we can be so spiritual. We can raise our hands and we can talk the talk. We can put on the mask and the face and live it in the church, in the worship service on Sunday morning. But you know what? We go out and we live like who the rest of the week? We kind of live like the devil, right? And people see us and they think, wow, what a terrible person. And that upsets God. That's what we need to recognize, that God is longing and looking for something different. What is he longing for? He is longing for Judah to have serious courage. Judah created sinful conditions, but they also needed serious uh, courage. In verse 30, we read the following. I searched for a man among them who would repair the wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land so that I might not destroy it. But I found no one. See, what God was going to do is he was going to come in a day of judgment. He was going to come down and decide that he'd check on his nation of Judah. And when he came down, he would evaluate them so that he could protect them, that he could bless them. God wanted Jerusalem to be pure and holy, especially when he found them on his day of judgment. Um, Ezekiel 13, 5, Ezekiel delivered this prophecy against the prophets. The prophets, he said, do not go up to the gaps or restore the wall around the house of Israel so that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. See, God is going to come and he's going to check out the people. And what he wanted them, he wanted to find someone, just one person who was standing faithful for him, standing in the gaps, fighting the good fight of faith, standing for God, standing for the covenant, standing for righteousness and justice. He wanted to find someone who was there on the wall fighting the good fight so that the nation would not be destroyed. But Ezekiel tells us that God said, and that's an ominous statement at the end, I found no one. No one was being faithful. No one was being faithful. God was not happy with that. And because of this, Judah faced stern condemnation in verse 31. It says, so I have poured out my indignation on them and consumed them with the fire of my fury. I have brought their conduct down on their heads. This is the direction, the declaration of the Lord God. As a result, God was going to judge them. He was going to pour out his his rightful and lawful justice on them. Because in the covenant, it said, if you will, I will be your God if you will be my people 
and I will keep the bargain and you keep the bargain. What's the bargain? The bargain is the Ten Commandments. The bargain is the stipulations. It's to live as a faithful servant of a holy God. So in the fire of his anger, he was going to finish them. He was going to just allow the Babylonians to come and destroy them and to carry them away in captivity. And then the ominous thing was, their own ways he was going to place on their heads. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Don't, do not judge lest you be judged. You will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. See, God recognized that Judah no longer was a lighthouse. The temple was no longer a place where prayer was offered and people were getting right with God and honest and holy worship was being offered to him. It was hypocritical. They might be bringing their offerings, but they went to worship other idols and they did exactly what the covenant said not to do. This was a shocking testimony to a holy and just God. But the point is that God meant business. God seriously meant business. So I guess part of the question is, okay, that's a good history lesson. Judah turned their backs on God, sinned against him. God was right and just in taking them away into captivity for 70 years before they were able to come back and to rebuild the temple, by the way, and begin to worship again in, in Jerusalem. But you might ask, well, how does that affect me? How does that make a difference in our church? Well, obviously, we need to recognize that God means business. You know that churches are closing their doors at an alarming rate. Southern Baptist churches alone, there's about 900, I understand, that close their doors uh, every year. But even more concerned about that is there are churches, the majority of which, 75 or so, depends on who you talk to, have either plateaued or begun to decline in growth. You know, 10 years ago, they're up here. Now they're down here in attendance and giving, in witnessing, in baptism. And somebody said, well, it's our times. We go through times and people don't want to hear the word of God. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I've found that people are receptive to it. It's just that we're afraid to tell them or we've gotten complacent and we don't go to tell them. It's great to tell them in certain programs and certain ways, but we just need to be living that life out there in the community that shows our relationship to God and our commitment to be Christ-like to others. Because if we aren't Christ-like, we really don't have a deep relationship. We really can have a deep relationship unless we become salt and light to the world. Jesus told us to do that. To understand that. And I think that it's good to say that God wants us to stand in the gaps. Because those churches are dying or plateauing, they're struggling. They need people to stand in the gaps. 
to earnestly pray for the church, to earnestly look in the church, earnestly to begin to live a godly, Christ-like life. There are a lot of churches that are doing that, but it's just one of those things that Satan wants to attack us over. That Satan wants to get us complacent because you say, oh, well, you know, we don't have a pastor. Let's wait. Let's listen to this guy that preaches for us, but let's wait and we'll not commit ourselves to anything. We won't give anything. We won't really attend that often. We'll just, just little glide along, you know, until whatever time they get a pastor. Then we'll talk about doing things maybe. Then we'll start doing things. Well, we'll find out whether that other new pastor can do it. And just what happens is that we just glide along. In the meantime, there are people that God is putting into our lives that need to hear the gospel. There are ways and situations where we can be a real testimony for the Lord and living in a Christ-like way. There are people around us in these new developments that are going on hither and there and everywhere that are coming into this community and they need to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that we need, Providence Church needs people to stand in the gap. And so the question is, will you do that? Will you stand in the breach in the wall with the sword of the Lord, your weapon in your hand, the Bible, and begin to teach people and share with people how holy a God we, live, we, we serve and we sing about him? But that holy God then makes us helps us to be the kind of servant that honors him so that we go out from this room, this building, we live it outside. And they see not only the righteousness that we profess, but and our holiness and our faith in Jesus, the come, holiness that comes from him, but they also see our justice as we live in a Christ-like way, loving God and loving people, and this is our testimony to the world. And we need people to stand in the gaps. We need all of the church members to stand in the gap. When there's a breach in the wall and it seems like the enemy can get in, we need to fill it and stand there. So I'm going to talk to you about standing in the gaps. And I'm going to share with you this whole series of sermon that talks about standing in the gaps. Because it's important for us to be the kind of church that God wants us to be. It's important for us to do that. About 106 years ago, the Great War, the war that was supposed to end all wars, was started. And the British Expeditionary Force, a very small force of British soldiers, were sent over to Belgium to guard a flank of the French army. The Germans were on the move, and it wasn't quite sure where they were going to come, but they began, they began to move into Belgium, do a flanking movement around the French army. The British Expeditionary Force had been stationed at Mons, Belgium, and along a canal that was in that city. Private Sidney Godley was one of those members of the British Expeditionary Force. He took over a machine gun squad right on the bridge 
where the Germans were expected to come. And they did come in overwhelming numbers. And there was a terrible fight and a great fight. And his lieutenant, who was in charge, said, this, this is so overwhelming for us that we have to retreat. And the word came down for the British expeditionary forces to retreat. But they needed someone to slow the progress and the movement of the German soldiers. And Sidney Godley and his lieutenant volunteered to stay back at the bridgehead and man the machine guns. The lieutenant continued to fire into the midst until he was mortally wounded and died. Sidney's job was actually to pass the ammunition and to make sure that the machine gun was working properly. But he took over the machine gun and moments after he continued for about 30 minutes. And then he was wounded, but he didn't let that stop him. For the next hour and a half, Sidney continued to fire on the Germans to stop them from crossing the bridge while his compatriots, his fellow soldiers, were able to make their retreat to the safety of a other, another place where they would, uh, the defense that they had set up. He kept firing, he was wounded twice, and he passed out. When he woke up, he was in a German prison camp, prisoner of war camp. But his gallant action covered the retreat of his comrades. His final act before he did pass out was to destroy the machine gun and throw the pieces into the canal. Everybody at home thought he had died. But later, when he was returned, the Germans said, we didn't know the devil that was there. <laughs> Sidney stood in the gap. And he was honored for this and remembered for his heroic and gallant action. He stood in the gaps. I guess my question is, will you stand in the gaps? Will you try to make sure that the breach is not opened up and the enemy passes through? Help me be a good interim by coming and by standing in the gaps so that God will bless this church in a grand and mighty way. Not because of me and not because of you, but because we are willing to be committed to him and he will get his glory as long as we stand in a right relationship with him and let that right relationship show as we become Christ-like believers who show justice and love and care to the world. I'm asking you this morning is to stand in the gap. In just a moment, we're going to have the musicians come up and offer our worship song, our last song, our hymn of invitation. But as we sing this song, as we talk about finding a resting place for our faith, help us, let's ask God to help us be the individuals to do what we can do. We may not be able to do a lot, but we can do something. But I believe that in doing that little something, we can stand in the gap. I'm not going to ask you to come forward and testify to the fact. I simply just want you to stay where you are in your pew and pray and say, if you're a member of this church, Lord Jesus, I'll stand in the gap. I will stand in that gap. Thank you, Steve. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, come.
Amen. All right. Amen. Thank you, Brother Steve. I know there are others of you who are willing to do that and the testimony that's been given. So let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. If you'll come, musicians, and just make this our commitment. What we can do, we'll stand in the gap. My faith has found a resting place. You sing with me. I'll be down here at the front if you want to come and talk with me. Will you come?